The word of God from Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Rachel. Would you remain standing? I'm just going to commend this time in prayer. Before I do, two things. One, you'll want to keep your Bible open or your Bible app open. And two, 
it's not often that you get to preach a sermon in front of a man who discipled you and was your mentor. Today, my friend Jason and his family are here. Jason, uh, this is a love, you're like, look what you've done. Esther, your dad had so much influence in my life. I'm so glad you guys are here. Pray with me, please. Lord, um, thank you for the book of Revelation. As mysterious and hard as it is, we pray that your spirit would illumine this portion of your word and at the same time, brighten our hearts, soften our hearts, uh, make us teachable and soft to you, Lord. And um, Lord, we want to know you. We want strength to follow you. We want deep soul encouragement. So we ask, according to your mercy, bless us with that through the preaching of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. As you noted, we're going to start a new sermon series on the book of Revelation today. And a little pro tip as we start out, it's just one singular revelation. It's not revelations, just one. Now, some of you might have grown up in a tradition where uh, this is all people ever talked about, and it got really weird and wacky, and people are pulling out charts and all kind of stuff, and maybe all that has really turned you off. Um, I hope that studying this will redeem your experience and show you how the last book of the whole Bible is beautiful and compelling. Um, Others of you may have never heard a single sermon from the book of Revelation in your entire life, and maybe you see yourself as modern and educated. Uh, I myself have both an undergraduate and master's level uh, degree in science, and I've been trained to describe, you know, phenomena with a naturalistic uh, perspective, and, and so there's in us this natural skepticism to the fantastical language of the book of Revelation. Um, I, I pray that our study would kind of correct both extremes. Like, on one hand, a proper understanding of the book of Revelation is not wacky and as weird as some of these little, like, Bible code books are in these Christian bookstores. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you're going to notice that it, the Bible's not embarrassed to vividly show you the spiritual realities that, uh, uh, that anchor our physical world. And so whether... Um, You believe it or not, there are spiritual and invisible battles that are being fought, and the outcomes of those battles affect you and I in the world that we're living in right now. And here's why all of this matters. The purpose of Revelation is it encourages its hearers, it blesses its hearers and its readers to live these faithful lives in the face of great temptation and tribulation. Um, In Spanish, there is this word, resistencia. What's that sound like? Resistencia. Resistance, right? And that is indeed what it means, but resistencia means both resistance and endurance, both. That's the gift of Revelation. Resistance and endurance. 
the Apostle John was given a vision that, that describes reality in such a way that it gives its listeners endurance and resistance. Resistance against forces that want to assimilate us and to steal our faith and our hope. So how does that work in the book of Revelation? What's well, going to show us who's winning this unseen cosmic war, and it's going to tell us how it all ends. Let me illustrate kind of how this works, kind of help us. When I got married to Amanda over t- 21 years ago now, uh, you know, we'd start watching movies together. Uh, so I like scary movies because I'm a psycho. And uh, I like creepy movies. I, I like monsters kind of jumping out at me. I don't know. Now, my wife, she doesn't even like the previews or the trailers for scary movies, right? Total, because she's not psycho. Um, she would never watch a scary movie. Well, there was this movie early in our marriage that came out called The Village by this director called, whose name is M. Night Shyamalan. And if you know much about this director, you know, he's creepy and, um, you know, he's like these scary and, you know, twist endings are kind of his shtick. Um, you're not going to believe me. I got my wife to watch this movie with me. And how did I do it? Well, back in the early 2000s, we had DVDs. And um, kids, it's these little discs. That, um, so we rented the, DD, the, the DVD. And before watching the movie, we fast forward to the final chapter. And we watched the last scene first. I know. It was like a redemptive spoiler. And the mystery was gone. We knew exactly how the movie was going to end. And because of that, it gave Amanda courage to watch the movie. Now, it was courage she didn't have before, knowing the end. Um, Now, there are portions of the movie that are still scary, but she had confidence to kind of endure those scary parts. That's what Revelation's going to do for us. It's going to help us understand the end of the story. It's going to help us see what is behind the scenes so that we can all live with resistencia, resistance and endurance. So we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 1, and we're just going to look at two things today. First, we're going to look at um, the author, John, and look at his life. And second, we're going to look at John's description of Jesus. And those two things are going to set the stage for the book of Revelation. It's going to show us how to be strengthened with endurance and how to resist the seductions of this world. So first, the author, John. So the opening verse, in verse 1, it tells us that John is the author. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that word revelation, or Jesus Christ is in the genitive position, so it means the revelation not about Jesus, but by Jesus, the one who delivered it which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, uh, the great church father, Irenaeus, you might remember that name, he writes, he reports this, he says, John received the revelation almost in our time toward the end of the reign of Domitian. Now, from Irenaeus's description, we learn a whole lot. We confirm that John wrote it, and... Now we know the context that it would have been during this tumultuous reign uh, in in the Roman Empire. I want to spend just a little bit of time telling you about John and his life during the reign of Domitian 
because he's the disciple that Jesus loved. He was Jesus's best friend. And I want you to understand his heart. I want you to understand what John wanted to accomplish with the revelation so that you don't get distracted by all of this really complicated uh, imagery. Because John wants to provoke in you hopeful worship. And when I say that word worship, you know, we think of going to church and singing, and it most certainly is that. We think of like what we do together, that is worship. But worship is also not just what we do together, but when we scatter, like when we leave the church. That's how come Paul in Romans 12 would say, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. See, worship is also reflected in how we spend our money and the food that we eat and the words that we choose to speak or not speak. Worship is how we conduct our lives with our families and our friends, and even our enemies. We were designed to worship, but instead of worshiping Jesus, we tend to worship ourselves. And Jesus knew that we would never find him, so he leaves the riches of heaven to find us. And Jesus, the God of this universe, he was born in a manger, and that event was marked by worship. The angels worshiped, the the shepherds worshiped, even wise men from a different religion worshiped. They all came to worship Jesus, and he grew, and when he turned 30 years old, he called 12 men to follow him. He discipled them, and he taught them, and that concept's a little bit weird for us because usually we choose the schools that we want to go to, but back then, a teacher or a rabbi selected his own students, and so Jesus had thousands and thousands of people who followed him, but he selected 12, and of those 12, there were three that were closest to Jesus, James and Peter and John. And John spends every moment with Jesus just about for three years, and John sees everything. He's an eyewitness to everything. He saw Jesus walk on water. He was there. When Jesus turned water into wine, he was there. When he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount in different locations, he was there. And their friendship was intense. John was known uniquely as the disciple that Jesus loved. See, on Jesus' last night, he had supper. Have you ever seen those pictures of the Last Supper? Guess who sets up the room and and the food? It was John. And during dinner, who, who who sat by Jesus? It was John. And at dinner afterwards, they sang a hymn together whose voice harmonized with Jesus' voice. It was John. You see the point? John was with him. And the next evening, he saw his best friend crucified. John screamed for the release of his friend, but his voice was drowned out by the angry mobs. I mean, could you imagine the tears and the pain that John must have felt as he saw his friend and God executed? And as Jesus was hanging on the cross, who was Jesus looking at was John. See, see, when you're being murdered and all you can think about is who is going to look out for your earthly mother, that person who you would select in that moment, that person is your very best friend. And why do I tell you all this? Because the contents of this revelation 
are not theoretical for John. This book is not some exercise in doctrine. This is about the exaltation of his best friend, and more, his God. And so John himself would become a rabbi, and he was commissioned to teach about Jesus and his return. He was the one who trained the majority of the pastors in the early church. You might know the name Polycarp, the church father. John disciples him. And he, John lived this amazing life. Early on, the church grew very quickly, particularly in the Roman Empire. Rome grew in power, dominated other nations and cultures. Rome was the superpower of its day. And because of that, it was very pluralistic. There were a lot of religions and languages. And the Roman government didn't care what your religion was or even the God that you worshipped in private. But you had to participate in this thing called the imperial cult. That is, regardless of who you worshipped in private, you had to worship the emperor as the king of kings and the lord of lords above your own religion. And the problem was is that a lot of Christians started meeting together in little groups, and they were all worshiping the same God, Jesus. And this same people would not declare that there is any other king of kings or lord of lords except Jesus. And so, see, for Christians, they were unwilling to have Jesus just be another God on the menu of possibilities or religious options in this so-called tolerant society. They would not bend their knee. And so persecution came. And John lived through two persecutions. First, it was Nero. He, this guy was insane. He was brutal. You know, some people have foolishly said, you know, the New Testament, can you even trust what those guys said? That stuff was made up. And my question is, why? I mean, well, what did John have to gain? Boiled alive. Everyone else he knows is murdered. Everyone he knew was stripped naked, murdered, and stacked in the street. To be a Christian meant to die in poverty and shame. And you don't do that unless you are irrefutably convinced that what you are speaking is the truth. And John saw it all. The life of Jesus, his death, he saw his burial, his resurrection, his, he saw his ascension into heaven. And the persecution exploded. It was not uncommon in that day for the Romans to take you and me and our brothers and sisters and our cousins and to wrap us in animal skins and to throw us to the lions and tigers for sport so that we would be eaten alive just for sport. It was not uncommon for brothers and sisters in Christ to have a rope tied to each of their limb, and then the other side of those four ropes would be tied to four different horses. And then they would look at you and say, hey, do you want to deny Christ? We can make this all go away. But they didn't, and the horses ran, and they died. With John we know that he was boiled alive. Somehow he miraculously survived it, though he probably lived his life with scars covering his entire body. And that was better than the other 11. The other 11 all die bad. And John was exiled to the island of Patmos, which is in the present-day Turkey. You see that in verse 9, we're told that. And this is when John received this revelation from Jesus. 
And when John was released from exile, he came back, and guess what he did? He keeps on preaching. He was old, but he kept preaching in the middle of the persecution. And as he walked to and from church, he surely saw bodies of other Christians stacked on top of each other, men and women murdered and maimed. These bodies were not even given a decent burial. That was John's congregation. You see? This is not an intellectual exercise of doctrine. This was real life for them. And these people needed resistencia. And that's exactly what John offers to them and to us through this book of Revelation. Now, just imagine that we lived in that time. what, What would we struggle with? We might be tempted to give up. We might be tempted to not take Jesus so seriously in order to avoid persecution and to be liked. We might be tempted into despair. See, when we look around the world, or when they looked around the world, let's start there, who would they have said is winning? Like the good guys or the bad guys? Who's winning? And then what about you? Who's winning, church? I had a conversation with a young lady who is in the university right now. This is a couple months ago. She says that her friends are like internal conversations. They're legitimately asking the question if it is morally appropriate to have children, to bring more humans into this world because it would both use more environmental resources and you're having babies and and they're coming into a world that has harsh, harsh realities. Should you even have kids? Is this generation optimistic? Like, who is winning? Right? Well, John writes the book of Revelation in order to pastorally help churches that are struggling with these things to help you. Revelation is not written to tell us about things that are going to happen in the future that have no revelation to our relevance with our present lives. Instead, he is infinitely concerned with your life right now. So it is written, and you're going to see this, to show us that Jesus is king and sovereign over all of history, and, his, and he's sovereign over all of his and our enemies. And because of that, we are gifted with resistencia, endurance, resistance. That's why John writes. Now, I want to transition just a second, or now. I'm really convinced that if you and I had eyes to see every reality, both physical and spiritual realities, I am convinced that we would not for a second doubt that God is in control. So Revelation then, that being true, is going to give us this imaginative but true glimpse into spiritual realities that anchor our physical world. Uh, He's going to do it through this genre called Jewish apocalyptic literature. And you're going to learn more about that as we work through it this, this, um, this semester or these next couple months. But what I want to do first is just evaluate how John does this with how he describes Jesus. 
So as I do this, I want to remind us that Revelation is written, is given to seven churches in the Roman Empire, and we're actually going to be examining one of those churches next week. Remember that Revelation is a letter, and it's written like other letters during that time. He, John uses a very standard introduction. Look at verses 4 and 5. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So John sends grace and peace in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, don't get distracted when John talks about the seven spirits. You see that in verse 4. That's going to be mentioned a few times. It's not seven literal spirits. It's just one But they use numbers different. This is the Holy Spirit. The the Greek word pneuma is what's used there. If they wanted to use seven separate angelic messengers, there's a word for that. They wouldn't use pneuma. And so this designation of seven is going to be all over the book of Revelation. We're going to see it time and time again. Um, But what it's doing here, it's symbolic for the Spirit's completeness and the exhaustiveness of its work. So we're going to see um, this again. Now, imagine John, he's sitting on an island, Patmos. He's all alone. And verse 10 tells us it's the Lord's Day, the Lord's Day, which that means it's Sunday. Like for 2,000 years, Jews met on Saturday, but Jesus was crucified on a Friday, resurrected on a Sunday. And from that moment, that resurrection was so time, history-altering, that, that immediately Christians began to meet on Sundays to commemorate the resurrection. It was the fulfillment of all that the Jewish Sabbath pointed to. And so John is by himself, and he suddenly hears a voice, verse 10, like a trumpet. Now, trumpets were used in the courts of kings, right, when they're about to make a royal decree. You can imagine. So Jesus here is making a decree, And this strong voice is telling John to write a letter to seven churches. And when John turns around to see who is speaking, he sees the appearance of Jesus. And here's the description. First, he says that Jesus was walking, verse 13, among the lampstands. Now, lampstands were used in the tabernacle or in the temple. And it was the job of the priest to ensure that these lampstands burned bright. And Jesus then is depicted... As a priest. And, he conti- and John continues saying that Jesus is wearing a, verse 13, a robe with a golden sash around his chest. What this means is he's no ordinary priest. He is the great high priest who is charged for caring for the lampstands, which we learn in verse 20 are the churches. These lampstands are churches. So John continues describing him as having white, uh, white hair like wool, verse 14. So in the Bible, white hair, gray hair, is a metaphor for wisdom. And so Jesus here has perfect wisdom. He makes no mistakes. And then it says, verse, the second part of verse 14, his eyes were blazing like fire. Fire is the tool to purify precious metals. Jesus doesn't simply look at you. Man, he looks into you. The gaze of Jesus penetrates into our soul. The power of his gaze kind of shores up and shows us our sin, right? Exposing the dross, the impurities of that precious metal. The eyes of Jesus were blazing like fire. 
And the feet of Jesus, the feet were like, verse 15, bronze glowing in the furnace. Y'all know what bronze is? It's the combination of iron and copper. So iron is strong, but it can corrode. Copper can endure, but it's a very soft metal, and it's not, it's not great for foundations. But if you mix the strength of iron with the endurance of copper, you get this thing called bronze. The invention of bronze changed history. We have a whole period called the Bronze Age. The feet of Jesus are like bronze. In the Old Testament, the prophet Daniel, he has this vision. Uh, there, there's a statue, this vision, uh, whose feet were made of iron and clay. And although the statue was magnificent, it collapsed because the base was weak. Not so with Jesus. Even in the face of the world's most powerful forces, he will endure. From his mouth, verse 16, comes a sharp double-edged sword. So Paul in Ephesians 6, riffing on Jeremiah, tells us that the word of God is, a, is the sword of the Spirit. This means that Jesus will crush his enemies with the sword. In other words, if he says it, it will be realized and fulfilled without even struggle. His, his power is perfect and absolute but it is a double-edged sword, if you notice. That sword is both for God's enemies and God's friends. See, when we search the word, the word searches us, doesn't it? The words of Jesus divide our thoughts and our motivations. The truth of God's word cut away at the lies that are deeply embedded in our minds, our imaginations, and our hearts. Now, it'd be impossible to sort of exhaust this rich imagery, uh, this majestic description of Jesus. But the question we have is, what's the point? <laughs> like, what's the point? What are, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, let's see what happened to John after he saw this vision. Look at verse 17. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last See, when John saw Jesus, he fell on his face. Remember, Jesus is John's very best friend, and yet he is not casual with Jesus. Jesus is his God and his king. So here's the point. Your posture reflects your heart. Your posture reflects your opinion. So for instance, if a, if a lady walks into the room, a gentleman will stand. If an older person walks into your presence, you greet them and show them respect. When I walk into my house at the end of a workday, my kids, when they're little, right, they'd run to me with open arms, right? There's no doubt in my mind that I am the object of my children's affection, right? Because it's written all over their body language towards me. Their posture reveals their opinion of me. So what's John's opinion of Jesus? Love, respect, and fear. John fears Jesus more than he fears Caesar. Caesar literally claimed that he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And John says, no way. I was boiled alive by Caesar, but I would not deny this one, Jesus. 
And so when Jesus enters the room, he falls on his face. And John, in that moment, he's seeing a deeper reality. The ancient world thought that Caesar was the most powerful God, but John, no man, he knows better. How about you? Do you know better? I mean, when you look around and you look out your window and you read the newspaper or think about your own melancholy or depression, like, why, why are you discouraged? Why are you depressed? Are you afraid? And just project your imagination now into the future. Like, are you afraid? I mean, who's winning? Who's winning? John asked that. Is it Rome? Is it the devil? Or is it Jesus? You guys, how big is a star? Can you fit a star in your hand? Can you fit a star in this room? Can you fit a star in the state of Colorado? Can you fit a star inside the earth? How about seven stars? Verse 16, John tells us how seven stars fit in the palm of this one's hand. Verse 16 says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. And Jesus takes his strong right hand and he places it on John. It says, verse 17, but he laid his right hand on me. I want you to know, and Jesus lays his right hand on you and says, fear not. I, I'm the first and the last. I know how this ends. So what is your vision of Jesus? Is he bigger than your culture? Is he bigger than your fears? And what does your posture show about what your opinion of him is? And you guys, here's the point. He won. He won. Look at verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Everyone is going to know this reality that you have privy to right now because he is coming on the clouds of heaven where everyone will see him in victory. And even the very people who hammered nails in his hands, them too, they will see. And this is how come at the very end of verse 7, John concludes, he says, so shall it be, or even so, amen. He's emphatically asserting that Jesus wins, and so don't give up. Like, keep pressing forward. Keep reading your Bible. Keep praying. Keep sacrificing. Keep fighting against your greed. Keep fiercely fighting against your sin. Keep fighting against your cynicism. Keep fighting against your grudges. Keep fighting against and confessing your sin. Whatever you do, don't give up. Jesus is coming. He'll come, he's like a cloud rider. And he'll finish this. And it might look on occasion like Jesus is losing. 
And that's how come the, the New Testament, Paul will say, that's how come we live by faith and not by sight. You and I are only seeing one part of reality, but in the book of Revelation, we get to peek behind the curtain. We're seeing a fuller reality so that we all might have this gift of resistencia, hopeful endurance and resistance against the forces that want to assimilate us. And I'm, listen, I'm not saying that this life is easy. All those who follow Jesus die, and they die bad. That's how it was for John. I'm not saying that faith is easy, but what I'm saying is we are not alone, and we're not fighting a losing battle. And you remember those seven stars in Jesus' right hand. This is what he says. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In other words, we are that lampstand those in the hand of Jesus. We are tight. We are tight in the grip of hope, of Jesus' grip. Jesus wins. He wins. We're seeing how this ends. Don't grow weary. Let's be encouraged this semester. Amen? Amen.